not my kind of weather, but it's your kind of weather. Uh, I left home and it was still 84 degrees with no humidity. And that's just wonderful, wonderful weather to, to live in uh, most of the time. Uh, I, uh, I think, uh, if not all of you, most of you are aware that the next time that you see me, there'll be two of me. And uh, it won't just be me alone, uh, but the Lord has graciously uh, provided someone for me to marry. And so life, life will be changing again. I, I, look, I look in the mirror sometimes and I say, uh, do you really want to be looking at your clock when it's time to go to service and say, now you know that we're supposed to be there at 11 o'clock. <laughs> but but there, there are trade-offs that you go through, uh, you know, for each of these things. Hallelujah. Now don't tell Michelle that. Don't tell her that. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, moving forward with life. Uh, it's been a busy, busy year for me, as a Pastor Chuck said. Um, the early part of September, in fact, September 1st, I left for South Africa. And um, we had a visitation from a storm uh, named Irma um, while I was in South Africa. And so many were asking, well, aren't you concerned? Aren't you worried? I said, what good is it going to do 8,600 miles away? So I said, the, the house will either be there or it won't when I get back. And if, it, and if it's not, I have provision in place where it can be replaced. You know, you, you, you learn through life that you appreciate things, but you love people. You don't love things and appreciate people. Well, you can't appreciate people, of course, but I, I, do, uh, I do love people. And I appreciate things, but I can't live without them. Amen. And so we were there for 19 days, and I got an opportunity to minister to each of the people groups uh, there. And, and I say that somewhat reluctantly because uh, God's people are God's people, regardless to what shade their skin color may be. They're, they're his people. And, but, you know, they, they have the different groupings there. And I was just grateful that I got a chance to visit and to... Uh, share the word of the Lord with each of them, and, and then in coming back. Something they did not tell me, the last group that I ministered to, um, when I was leaving, and it's good sometimes that they keep information away from you because you don't have to think about it, but they said, uh, you were just in the most dangerous area of Johannesburg preaching. <laughs> and I'm thinking, thanks for telling me now, <laughs> you know. Uh, but nevertheless, we, we had a beautiful move of the Spirit that morning. Um, so things are, are happening there. And then leaving from South Africa, I was into Alaska in early October. And in, um, oh goodness, Alaska, hallelujah. But in, in a place called Glen Allen. How many of you ever heard of Glen Allen? Well, Glen Allen is... Um, more in the heartland of Alaska, and it's one of the places that really gets cold. And in October, it was already eight degrees. And again, I'm leaving out of Florida, and where it at that time it was about 90 degrees still in Florida, and going to eight degrees in Glen Allen. And I and I, and I said to the Lord, I said, 
I understand why you've never led me to live up here. <laughs> because uh, uh, this uh, October 8 degrees, God knows what it's going to be in February. Um, but, uh, you know, God has people every place. He does. And uh, there's some wonderful things that are happening up there. So the year, you know, that's just some of the uh, adventures. Uh, but the year has been quite busy. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, I have um, dealt with primarily a couple of things this year. Um, the Lord many times will deal with me that way during the course of a year. And about at the end of that year, I will have uh, chewed that word up enough and got it digested into my spirit that I'm able to communicate it fairly effectively. Um, and what I want to do today, and uh, possibly tomorrow, uh, I just try to uh, be open uh, to the Lord in each situation, is maybe uh, share a little bit of that. Um, so if you would, open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 11. And I want to read three verses here this morning. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 through 10. I understand Pastor Chuck has done an exegesis of the book of Hebrews. So you'll get the Everett taste of it this morning. <laughs> Is that okay? All right, we'll just combine together, join together, and, uh, and you have a really just a, a good picture. In verse 8, Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Abraham, and we know, of course, that Hebrews chapter 11 is the chapter where many of the faith worthies of the Old Testament are listed, not all of them, uh, but many of them. Said Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, he obeyed. The key word here is obeyed uh, because with every act of faith you will have an accompanying act of obedience when Adam was of course uh, in his initial stages here on earth as number one the representative of God and we could equally say the house of God he gave God residence in the earth. And what he was primarily called to do was to be obedient. Now, the reason that I make that point is that in, in Romans chapter 5, it tells us that by the disobedience of one man, all were made sinners. And then, many years later, through the obedience of one man, many were made righteous. So we know that basically two men have made decisions for all of mankind. And so from there, I knew that Adam was called to move in obedience, what God had given him as a command. In those commands, there, were, there, were only, there was only one restraint, and that was that he could not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in the day that he would do so, he would surely 
That is, in dying, he would die. So a process of death would begin, and it would culminate in the separation of his spirit from his body. So that happened, of course, uh, because he was disobedient. But here, we see the Lord initiating a recovery program that's going to lead to eventually the Messiah coming to earth through this lineage. We have the legal line here established through Abraham. Now, if we even go further back, we would see that this line did not come through Cain. It came through Seth. And then there was a correction that was necessary, what we call the flood in Genesis. You read Genesis chapter 6 through 8. Shortly thereafter, we see that men, once again, following their own hearts and following their own souls, they began to create things that were not necessarily acceptable, but it led to confusion. And so by the time you get to the call of Abraham, which we see the initiation of that in Genesis chapter 11, and then once again repeated in Genesis chapter 12, the first few verses, is that there's great confusion in the land. And in the midst of all of that, God separates a man. And... I'm going to use the word isolate here carefully. In his separation, he isolates this man to himself. And he begins to develop this man in order that he can bring forth a seed out of this man at the end of that process that will be able to recover the creation from all the demise that had taken place. Now, what I've just done is actually summarized 4,000 years of history. But that is the case. But it has to begin with someone. It has to begin with someone. And, and in this, it said that, and he went out. Now, we know that at first, he didn't go out by himself. But following, really, the, the patriarchal uh, pattern of that time, the oldest male in the family would usually be the final voice, the yes or the no whenever a decision had to be made. Now, of course, we don't live like that in America. Uh, in fact, uh, we, we really don't appreciate the wisdom of elders as we should. But nevertheless, that was the case back then. And so the Bible tells us that Terah, Abraham's father, led them out. And they went as far as Haran. And they stopped there. And then when Terah died, it said the Lord had already said to Abraham. So it's not like this is the first time he's hearing these instructions. Now hear me carefully here. Because often we'll find that there's, there's such a desire for the prophetic and especially in the realm of personal ministry, at least in a lot of the circles that I travel in. And sometimes the Lord will permit me to move in that and then sometimes not. And I don't, I don't try to pull the trigger when he's not permitting. But what I realize is that when you get stuck in that vein, that oftentimes you, you've already heard from God what you need to do. And if you need a confirming voice to that, he may provide that. But just in case that he doesn't, you still already know what to do. And so what I find myself asking people sometimes when I find them pulling on me for it, that dimension of ministry. And again, I'm not saying that's bad, but when I find that they're pulling for the sake of pulling, 
My question to them is, what is the last thing God told you to do that you haven't done yet? And maybe that's the word that you need to hear. Now, if you can tell me what that word is, I'll just echo it. I'll repeat it right back to you if you need to hear something. And, of course, you know they're well pleased when I say that. But, but many times, like in the case of Abraham, why does God have to repeat again, come out, if he hasn't left yet? The Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country. Get away from your kindred and out of your father's house. And there's powerfully, there are three things, powerful things going on there. Because, of course, in your countries where we establish um, our nationality, our citizenship, we know based upon the New Testament, the word of God, that our citizenship primarily is in heaven from whence we look right now. That's our true citizenship. Yes, we're citizens of the United States of America, but that's a secondary thing. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our nationality is very simple. We're sons of God. So if somebody asks you, again, what is your nationality, and you have a box that says other, go ahead and mark it. Are you with me here today? Now, in the second century, they actually did that when they would ask believers, what is their nationality? And they would always say other because they understood that they were sons of God. And there was no classification on the marking for that. And so they just said other. So that's what we know primarily. And what, and what God is delivering all of us from are these tags that men have attached to us and said, that's your identity. This is who you are. Okay? Aren't you grateful for that? Now, when you're talking about leaving your kindred, you're basically talking about the rim of your developed culture. Because among your kinfolk, really, you're going to find your culture. Okay? Uh, so those of you who have come from up here, Michigan, and, you've, and you have had the opportunity to come down south, you, you find that people down there basically don't think the way that you do. They don't even drink the same kind of tea that you drink. Unless, unless you're from the south, your family migrated up here, and they still make soy type. <laughs> I mean, they don't even pronounce it the way you pronounce it. I mean, you know, you, 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 put, it, you put in all of, uh, all of the pronunciation. Then you, you say it fastly. It's, it's not two words. It's one word, soy type. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like G-Jet. How many of you know what the, I just said? G-Jet. G-Jet. See, Gladell knows because she's got roots in Kentucky. They all talk like that in Kentucky. <laughs> That's my one. I told her I was really going to be good this time. <laughs> no, I said, did you eat yet? G-Jet. You see, if you're in the South, in the South, you know exactly what that was. See, culturally, come on, you know, there, there are nuances that, that are different, okay? And so when you're called to leave the culture that you know and to go someplace, and God's not really even talking to you fully yet about it, that's going to require trust. So it's like when I moved from North Carolina to Florida, and uh, I realized that I was in a foreign country. 
I mean, you know what a fern country is. <laughs> yeah, fern country. Yeah. I said, wow, man, this is really different. I know it's America, but it's really different. So what is the culture that God calls us into then as sons of God, being that our identity is now clear, it's been restored, because when you're looking at what really was lost, if you go by and large, it was man lost in his identity. And thus he was behaving like an orphan. Now this is extremely important, brethren. Because if you, if you study many of the stories through Scripture, you're looking at the difference in how an orphan behaves versus a son. Now I, was, I was really challenged with this about the month of June. Because it was at that time, and, and, and really... It's a subtle thing how this thing will try to grip you. Because the two primary concerns of an orphan would be provision, protection. Who's going to take care of me? And am I going to be provided for? And when Adam left the garden, when he left out of his relationship with God, at that very moment he became an orphan. And that orphan spirit has been pervasive through all of humankind, regardless to what you call yourself. It was in every man. And so the concern was there, provision, protection. This is why God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 after the battle, he said, I am your shield, protection. I am your exceeding great reward, salary, salary. You look the word reward up, is salary. I'm your provision. That's what God said to him. Now, was he still battling with the orphan thing? Absolutely. God would have never had said it if he wasn't battling with it. And so for me, I was saying, now, Lord, you know, I'm a single man now, and, that's, and this is fun. I said, I, I, I really don't have to uh, be concerned about how I put the toilet paper on the roll anymore. Uh, whether I mash the the end of the you know the end of the tube of toothpaste or in the middle of it, I can just because I'll, it's it's just me, you know what I'm saying. And so uh, uh, I said, but it clearly the direction is it's not good for a man to be alone. I know that. I said it didn't take me a year and a half to learn that. I know that. Why you said that now? I said so taking on another wife. Now this is what I'd be doing. Uh, it'd be two instead of one. I said, there are times uh, there'd be things happening here. And I don't know really if, uh, just being honest, I said, I don't know really if I want to trust you for another wife. Now, some men won't tell you that. Because, you see, this is how I'm thinking. I'm in my 60s now, and I'm thinking physically my most productive days are behind me. And sisters don't come cheap. <laughs> Can all the sisters say amen? <laughs> sisters don't come cheap. And, I, you know, and I'm thinking all this. And so, uh, and so I share this with a brother who we, we've been close for more than 40 years. And he says, okay, let's go through this. He said, now, I was there tonight when God spoke 
exactly what he was going to do with your life. We've watched that unfold for the last 40 years. He said, we've seen the faithfulness of God. And, you know, and by that point, I'm starting to get convicted because I know, I know what he's saying. And he said, we've watched the faithfulness of God. We've watched the provision of God. We've watched the protection of God. You know, and, and then it's starting to click in. Here it is. I am allowing fringes of that orphan thing to sneak back in. And I was not paying attention. And my friend, as he began to speak, see, this is why we need brothers. Brothers that can speak into our lives, you know, stand beside us. Hallelujah. And as he did, I said, I hear you. I hear you. And at that moment, I repented and I said, Lord, Forgive me for even thinking like an orphan. It's such a subtle thing. Because, you see, that's what the apostles were dealing with when they were overly concerned about Jesus saying, I'm leaving. You can't go with me. But I'm returning. And all they could think about was being forsaken. And part of his last message to them is, Lo, before he being released to go back to the heavens. He said, Lo, I'll be with you always, see. You're never going to be forsaken. You're never going to be deserted. You don't ever have to think like an orphan. Now, this is going to be extremely important, brothers and sisters, in going forward. Because, see, at this point, when Abraham obeys, his dad is gone. Now, we don't hear much, in fact, scripturally, I haven't seen anything about his mother. So we know that he doesn't. At this point in his life, his parent is his father. And what, and what the father is requiring of him is to do something that he hasn't called any other person to do. And that is leave your country. Leave your culture. Set it aside. Leave it. I mean, this is not just an insinuation or a good idea. Most of my kin people in North Carolina have rarely even been out of the state of North Carolina. And in fact, they don't care. And they don't ever leave out of the state of North Carolina. Because as far as they are concerned, the world could end right there in North Carolina. Now, come on, that's, you know, that, that's short-sighted, okay, when you're talking a world like we have. And so when I was a boy, I would cook things like uh, chow mein. And my daddy is asking me, boy, where did you come from? Well, you know, I want to say I came from you, but uh, he said, where did you come from? He said, uh, nobody around here eats stuff like that. You know, we eat things like collard greens, black-eyed peas, cornbread, pigtails, you know, all of those things that uh, would make your mouth water when you don't know better. <laughs> Fried chicken. Then I got married to Ann, and she stopped frying chicken. I said, what is this? I didn't marry you for you to stop frying chicken. And I said, that is a preacher's staple. 
The only way that you're able to grow your bubble in the middle is you must eat chicken on Sunday. I mean, that is an established fact. And so, but she stopped the frying of the chicken. The dad said, why in the world are you eating things like that? And then I'd eat things like tamales, the real deal with the corn shucks. Dad's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's going on here? Now, I really didn't know what was going on, not even myself. All I knew was that I was being drawn to try some different things. I didn't know that that was a setup from God when I was a boy, getting me prepared for the assignment in the future. And that is to go into different nations. And when you go, partake of their food. And do it gladly. Even if you have an eyeball looking at you in the soup. Do it gladly. <laughs> I mean, come on, Pastor Chuck. I know it's taught you all about missions and everything. And, you know, you want to go to nations. Well, believe me, you're not necessarily going to be served filet mignon. Now, you may be served tenderloin, but it may be the tenderloin of a monkey. Isn't it wonderful? We're having such a wonderful time. Well, there are cultural differences. First time I went into South Africa, food-wise. See, food is an expression of people. And they gave me something to eat, and I said, what's this? They said, man of God, you don't want to know. I said, you're right. I don't want to know. <laughs> don't even tell me. I just kept eating. And, uh, and so in this culture that we now dwell in because we're sons of God, there's a single word that defines it more than any other word I know, and that's righteousness. Yeah. Righteousness. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us that because Jesus, the Son, loved righteousness, therefore he was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his fellows because he loved righteousness and he, let me add this detail, I don't want to miss it, he hated iniquity or lawlessness. And that's part of the balance that must come to preaching the message of grace. Is not only do you love righteousness, but you also equally must hate lawlessness. In fact, if you love righteousness, it's going to provoke in you a hatred for lawlessness. Are you hearing me here today? And so since righteousness is our culture, you study the book of Proverbs and you'll find that there are many, many things that it says as a byproduct of righteousness, what it leads to. And one of the foremost statements is righteousness tended to life. It changes the quality of a man's life. Righteousness. If there's a cry, I believe, across the board in the church today is we're righteous men and women who have not compromised and sold out. Will you stand on your feet once again? That cry is across the body of Christ. And so when you're talking then leaving country, uh, leaving culture, what's the third thing? Because if you leave your father's house, in your father's house is the place where your biological DNA is established. 
All we got to do is read your DNA and we can tell you who your daddy is. Talk to me. Hmm? So if I'm talking about then leaving the established place of my DNA, then what I'm equally talking about is connecting at a higher realm than I've ever been in. Now, how do you know that my daddy had African descent in him? How do you know that? Look at me. How do I know that majority of your families, as far as the heritage, is European? All I got to do is look at you. Because our pigmentation indicates that, correct? And think that God would call us to rise beyond that. And that is what he's called us to do, is to rise beyond that. Now, this, this one is really real to me here. <laughs> to rise beyond what your pigmentation is. Because for me, ministry has been across the board. You wouldn't believe the number of times when I go into uh, black Pentecostal churches. They said, you sound too white. I said, well, how, how does white sound? Please tell me, how does white sound? Uh, I said, are you saying that I'm not hooping. How many of you know what hooping is? Okay, my brother here knows what hooping is. I'm, I'm in, do the rest of you know what hooping is? You see, I, I, I can suggest a school that you could go to to learn hoopology. Yeah, yeah, seriously. There's a school in Atlanta, and there's a pastor that teaches everybody can learn to hoop. And that school is filled with 95% white brothers and sisters trying to learn how to hoop. Because it's a natural thing to a black man. <laughs> I know you've heard hooping before. Well, today, I came to tell you. It's a natural thing if you can sing a little bit. And you go through a whole message. And, and you know, and, and it was just an art style that was primarily developed in the slave fields. So I go into, you know, uh, churches, and uh, I'm not hooping, trying to give substance. And they said, boy, you sound too white. You got to come back to your roots. And then I come among a congregation like this. And if you were aware that I, I hooped, now you've known me for 30 years, okay? And you don't place that kind of demand on me. But I do go places, and that's what they expect. Now, you see, the whole idea is you're being pigeonholed one way or the other. You're not white enough, you're not black enough. And the only thing I want to be is Jesus enough. That's all I want to be. And whatever style that I have to use at a certain time, I have no problems using it. So when God is calling us then beyond these color lines, and being pigeonholed by these color lines. Now, this is crucial here in America right now because you know the voices from the earth that has arisen. I didn't say the voice from heaven. The voices from the earth that have arisen, they're speaking loudly, 
And too many sons of God are giving ear to it. And what we need to do is remember that we're seated together with Christ. Seated together. Everybody say that with me. Seated together. There's not a seat over here for one racial group, another seat for another. Uh -uh. Seated together with Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven from whence we look. We've got to look at everything from our heavenly position. We must speak from our heavenly position. If it doesn't align with our heavenly position, then it's a waste of time talking about it. And that's why I don't get engaged in a lot of those conversations. I've been, people have tried, to, they have tried to draw me into it. I said, uh-uh. If, we, if we're not going to speak from the dynamic of our position in Christ, I don't have words to waste on this conversation. Have the narrative with someone else. Because, you see, I'm waking up more and more to recognize if as the seed of Abraham, now is, not, is that not what the Bible says about us? It said that you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, correct? If you belong to Christ. So we've already answered the if. Come on, that's not a condition that we've got to deal with anymore. We know that we belong to Christ. Therefore, we trace our roots all the way back to Abraham and as his seed. And equally, as he was called to leave those three things so that God could take him, not do away with those three things, but take him into a heavenly position to experience those things once again. Now, there's not the limitation there. Now there's not the confusion there anymore. You don't have to worry about Nimrod and his cohorts seeking you out to kill you. Come on, you have been separated unto God. Hallelujah. Separated unto God. And there, our identity is clear. We know exactly who we are. You see, I often look at the Old Testament from this particular picture. Here is Moses brings Abraham's seed, the sands of the seashore, out of Egypt. There's no connection with the majority of them of who they really are, their true identity. So when you begin vision casting, the first thing you've got to tell them is who you are. This is who you are as far as God is concerned. And so God says to him, tell them that they are a peculiar people. Tell them that they are a purchased people. Let them know the price for them was a special one. It was blood. Tell them that they are a kingdom of priests. Now you know coming out of slavery they weren't thinking like kings. And they certainly weren't thinking like priests. He said, tell them this is who they are. He said, tell them, all the earth is mine. Now think about this. You've just come out of a controlled situation where Pharaoh, the whole family of Egypt, controls everything that you do. You're producing, making them wealthy, but it's not really benefiting you. And then God says, tell them, they're no longer locked in, landlocked into their little vegetable garden anymore. And that's all the land they're ever going to experience and be allowed to encounter.
Tell them, all the earth is mine. Now think about it. You've just left a vegetable garden to realize it. You are now under a father who says, the whole earth is mine. He said, tell them this. He said, tell them that they are a chosen generation. Tell them, hallelujah, tell them they are a holy nation. Tell them because they don't know who they are. Now, we who minister, come on, we know that we're still dealing with the same thing today. we got to keep rehearsing, 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 telling people who they are. And so what he does, so God allows him to go back to the beginning, Moses, and he shows them from a historical perspective how they came about. And so you start at Genesis. And you say, this, brothers and sisters, is where the story began. This is how we evolved to where we are today. This is why we exist. This is the expectation of our Father. You see, your vision casting. Now, what makes the vision relevant is because the man casting the vision is relevant. We're not talking about a novice. We're not talking about a fly-by-night kind of person that just, you know, suddenly arose and they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. No, we're talking about a man that has been developed. His character has been worked on. He's not perfect, but at least he's had 40 years in the intense furnace of God to get developed for this assignment. And when it's time to be released into the assignment, he doesn't even want to go. That's generally how you know somebody's ready. It's when God has determined that, you know, we're, we're not going to just deal with chronos, space of time anymore, but kairos has come. Come on, the intervention of heaven now to earth, this specific spot, it's time now. And the person says, no, send somebody else. You see, when you're young and adventurous, you know, and figure that you know everything, and you know, your parents know nothing. <laughs> yeah, you're ready to go, God, yes, sir, I'll go around the world. It's kind of like John Mark, and you get out there, and you realize they cut people's heads off out here. They actually crucify people out here. And you say, well, I think I better go back home. Well, when you're finally dealt with very thoroughly by God, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. And so Moses is not only connecting them and keeping them connected to God, because that's the primary anointing that is in his life. As a Levite, Levite simply means one that is joined, attached. He keeps them connected. Now, of course, he doesn't bring them into inheritance, but he does keep them connected for 40 years. Could you imagine at the end of 40 years, the only thing that you primarily were doing, you were keeping people connected who wanted to be disconnected. If you study the book, you'll see, and you've studied the book. How many times did they say, let's go back to Egypt? 
I mean, over and over and over and over, want to retreat to something that God delivered them from. And so thus, you see the history laid out. God doesn't hide any of the fine print. He doesn't make the story look really good when it's really bad. Do we have anybody in here by the name of Joe? Okay, good. I can use Uncle Joe then. You see, if Uncle Joe was a pervert, God didn't hide it in the story. It's right there. You see the bumps. You see the bruises. You see the successes. You see the failures. You see the ugliness. You see what's pretty. It's all there in the story. Now, usually, you know, we, we'll hide a little a detail or two, especially if it's going to make the family storyline a little bit complicated and confused. Can I give you an example of this right now? Probably if you've got a TV, you've heard about all of the abuse that's been going on in Hollywood, they say, recently. Please. Now, anybody who's my age and older, you know there was always a casting couch. And if you got any major parts it was be, as a female, it was because you had been on the casting couch. Now, I'm using my words discreetly because we have children, but you know what I'm talking about. And all of a sudden today, there's a problem. It's like folks have tried to hide the real storyline, the real ugliness of what Hollywood has produced, and now they don't like their harvest. Here's the bottom line. You sow to the flesh, of the flesh you're going to reap corruption. It may not be immediately, but it is coming. And so God doesn't hide any of the story. And too often, we don't factor in the forgiveness in and the mercy in of God at work. Because if people did, Rahab would not have been called a harlot all of her life. Help me out here today. Every time you see it written of her, Rahab the harlot. When are they going to forget that was before? I mean, this woman becomes so important that when you look at the lineage of Jesus Christ, she's there. And yet, men are still calling her a harlot. Yeah, that may have been part of the story, but tell the other side of it. That may have been B.C., but tell the side after you've come into Christ. That is no longer who you are. Hallelujah. You are really a new creation, just like he said. You have a new citizenship. You have a father that you have just finally awakened to that breathed the breath of life into you, breathed spirit into you. Yes, you have him. He's got a culture that cannot be corrupted, cannot be defiled. Yes, it's called righteousness. And wherever there's righteousness, there will also be peace and joy. Wherever there's righteousness, you come into a place where you're no longer defined by the color of your skin. But truly, as it has been said, it really is the content of your character that matters. Yeah. 
I often tell people, my color is the least obvious thing about me. You see, because if I ever have to put this tent off, I'll still be. What color will I be then? <laughs> and so this is really an incredible call that we've been called to. And the only way that Abraham could really recognize how profound this was was he had to leave what he was comfortable with. I can see it for many of us. You will soon hear the voice of God in your spirit. And he'll ask you, are you ready to leave what you're comfortable with? What you've been committed to? Are you ready to go someplace that I will show you? But I won't tell you about it until you get there. Uh, that's where the rubber meets the highway of whether we're really walking in faith or pretending to be walking in faith. Because essentially this is what he had. God said, I'll show it to you when you get there. I began to talk to you about it when you get there. And so we know that the trip starts in Iran. It's like he moves north, then he starts to move west. And he comes into the land at a place called Shechem. He went through, obviously, Syria, because that's where he picked up Eliezer. He was a Syrian from Damascus. And there were people joining his caravan as he journeyed. You see, when he arrived in the land, he didn't arrive there by himself. Now, we already know that he took Lot on the trip with him. And there, and there will be those who are adventure seekers, and, and many times they'll take the trip for just what they can get out of it. And we eventually see this prove true in Lot's heart when he and Abraham separated after they both were so rich they couldn't even live together anymore. And their herdsmen began to strive over water rights, which was a big thing when you've got herds, especially when you're living in semi-arid conditions. Water is a big deal. Wars started over water, okay? And so, so you know that Lot is there. The word Lot, by definition, means veil. So once Lot was separated from him, once the veil was removed, remember what Paul said in, in Corinthians? You see... You remove the veil, you turn to Christ, and then the reading of the scripture is no longer paradoxical. It's no longer opaque anymore. It's now clear. You can see it. It becomes clear to you. But it requires the removing of the veil. Well, in Hebrews chapter 10, we know that the removing of the veil is the removing of the flesh. Because it said that here, that, that veil renting was literally the flesh of Christ in his crucifixion, once it was writ, then what is hidden now becomes obvious. It becomes evident. And so when Lot was removed, you have to read what God said to him after that. He said, now, lift up your eyes 
Your vision's getting ready to change. He said, first, look at this from a perspective you never looked at it from before. Look to the east, look to the west, look to the north, look to the south. You're about to get a perspective in something you've been in that you've never had before. And I say it this way. The purer your heart, the clearer your vision. One more time. The purer your heart, the clearer your vision. Let me say it from a beatitude position. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So now this veil is gone, lot, and now God is saying, now look, and when you take the four different uh, positions, take a universal look. This thing is much bigger, Abraham, than just what you think. And it requires you looking in every direction to see the diversity element in this. Because what you see in the north is going to be different than what you see in the south. Just if you look at it from a topography position, it's going to be different. <coughs> Hallelujah. But he said, take the full look. Then he said to him, now what you must do is arise, walk. So you'll never walk until you arise. That's an indication of change. Hallelujah. Yeah. When you arise, you've made a commitment to change. Now, when you put one foot in front of the other and start walking, now you've really engaged the change. And he said, walk in the length and the breadth and the width of this. And wherever you place your feet, that's yours. Hallelujah. Now, again, brethren, we have been taught so that it, with such a limited mindset that you can only have this. You can only have a little this, a dab of this. And God has said, first of all, get clear vision. Hallelujah. Look, look at this thing. And you know that we've been looking at the word of God. We've been looking at it really for years, many of us. And we're just starting to open up to what has already been there for 2,000 years, available for 2,000 years, and we're just opening up to it. Now the challenge is to start walking. Will it change you? Yes. Will you be different? Yes. Will people be able to pigeonhole you anymore? No. Because they won't be able to explain you like they think they can explain you to you now. It's amazing when you choose to break out of everybody else's box and enter into God's. And let him be the one that defines you to you. And that requires faith. You see, this is why the Bible, the, in, in Hebrews chapter 6, it describes it as faith toward God. It's not about faith for things. 
is faith toward God. In other words, you've got realigned. You're not scatterbrained. Hallelujah. You've set your face on him. Your faith leads you from faith to faith right into him. And therefore, we're trusting him. So, let me read further in this verse. Goodness, how long have I been so far? Oh, God, help me, Jesus. So by, <laughs> so by faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob. Jacob had 15 years with his grandfather, Abraham. Because Isaac was 60 years old when Jacob was born. And, of course, Abraham was 100. He lived 175 years. So he's got 15 years with his granddad. And he gets to hear the story firsthand of how God called them and why they are existing in this land today. He said that they are the heirs with him of the same promise. Look at what he was looking for. For he looked for a city. Now, he left a city initially, and now he's looking for a city. But look at the qualifications of this, a city which hath foundations. And this word here for foundations is thamelios, which simply means something put down, a substruction of a building. He's looking for a city with a solid secure foundations. He's looking for it. And then he said, whose builder, and that is technites, an artisan, founder, creator, builder, craftsman, we get our word technology from. And maker, demiurgos, that is a worker for the people, a mechanic, Spokesman, spoken of the creator, he was looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. Now, first question I think you have to ask, did he ever find that city in his lifetime? Although he was looking for it, did he see it? Then you have to ask, what city then is this that he's looking for? Who might that city be? Because it's amazing that when you look at the revelation of Jesus Christ, it ends with a city. Is that city something that is future? Or does that city have a current reality? The city. How long has it been in existence? If it has a current reality. Is it something we're still waiting on? Oh, is it waiting on us? 
And I think you have to ask all of these questions. Because if it is a present reality, then when did it start? And if it's already started, why are we so far behind? You see, the city I live in started in 1959. That's a relatively new city. Nobody expected 200,000 residents to be there now because it was all a hoax. Two brothers from New York brought a bunch of property <laughs> in Cape Coral. That's where I live. They never expected it to become anything, and they started selling lots. The people up here in Michigan, <laughs> Wisconsin, Minnesota, the Northeast, because, you see, you were still working, and you didn't know it was swamp. So they purchased lots, and then they started retiring. And they wanted to leave the cold and come to Florida and demanded their city that they had been promised. So then they had to dig canals to build up the property so that they could build homes. Now I'm telling you again, when the idea was first conceived, no one expected 200,000 regular residents to be there now. And then when the rent winter residents come, I don't call them snowbirds. I'm kind. I call them winter residents. And when they come, <laughs> then we got many times another 100,000 added. Do you think that was in the original vision of the two men who brought all that property and started selling it? No. Do you think Abraham when he started looking for a city, really knew how vast this was going to be. And the answer probably is no. Because when you first uh, develop just the idea of city, and, and we'll do a little bit of this, just give me a little bit more time. When you look at the first usage of this word city, it is not connected to a positive outcome. Do you know who the first city builder was? Let's go back in the Bible for a moment. It was a man by the name of Cain. First city builder. Why did he build his city? Because it was a further act of rebellion. Let me explain it. First, I'll define city by this. It was primarily in the Old Testament is a guarded place with an established watch or watchman. That was a city. Initially, it was merely an encampment or a post. It's used about 1,090 times in the Hebrew. And so 
if you just really simplify it, is a protected institution. Now, when you come into the Greek, it's the word polis, and there it differs in the sense that it becomes political by nature. And so a city becomes a political institution versus a protected institution. So at first, what we have is the beginning of what we call urban settlements. They were permanent settlements without reference to size or claims. And so none of the modern terms that we would use like a city today, the city of Detroit. Again, they couldn't imagine that, not in the day of Abraham. But if you go in descending order, city, towns a little bit smaller than a city, village a little bit smaller than a town, and then a hamlet a little bit smaller than a village. And I, and I ran into this when I went to the country of Estonia, where they still had hamlets, they still had villages, and of course, Tallinn, the capital, was a large city. And so the importance then of cities was something that God wanted them to understand because they were going to build cities. They were going to inhabit cities. But as I, as I look at what the Lord said to them when they came into the land, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 3 to 7, so the Lord our God handed King Og and all of his people over to us, and we killed them all. Not a single person survived. That's a pretty gory story. We conquered all 60 of his towns, the entire Argob region in his kingdom of Bashan. Not a single town escaped our conquest. These towns were all fortified with high walls and barred gates. That's what you expected, uh, a wall with gates around a city. We took many unwalled villages at the same time. We completely destroyed the kingdom of Bashan, just as we had destroyed King Sion and of Heshbon. We destroyed all the people in every town. We conquered men, women, children alike. But we kept all the livestock for ourselves and took plunder from all the towns. Now, the only thing I want to emphasize here is that you see the word village, you see the word towns. They were already existing when Israel came into the promised land. So what we can say then is that at that time, urban civilization had already begun. Now with Cain, why is he so important? Because he built his first city and he named it after his son. It was Enoch. <laughs> and we know how important that name is as far as faith is concerned. Enoch walked with God, but not this Enoch. So to name it Enoch would mean to name it something that is disciplined, dedicated. And then you can use the term train up, where it says train up a child. In the way that it's the same word, comes from the same foundation of Enoch. In Genesis 4, verse 10 to 12, listen to this. But the Lord said, what have you done? Now when God asks us a question like that, it's not all because suddenly he's got stupid written on his forehead and he doesn't already know the answer. I find that that's where law got their ideas from. If you ever have to go to court, you ever have to be examined by a lawyer. Whatever question he asks you, he already knows the answer to. 
So there's no reason to perjure yourself and lie. Now, the only way I know that is because my son told me he was a lawyer. <laughs> he said, we don't ask a question that we don't already know the answer to. So the whole point is to try to tie you up. So when God asks a question, is he trying to really tie you up? No. He's just really bringing you to a place of honesty. Everybody say honesty. When he says, Cain, where are you? Do you think he didn't know where Cain was? Adam, where are you? Do you think he didn't know where Adam was? Sure he is. So the question is simply to bring us to a place of transparency, which is one of the characteristics of the city, transparency. He said, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. Notice this. He didn't say all the ground. The ground that has swallowed your brother's blood. Because that's where he was producing crops. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on earth. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. In other words, Cain, you're an orphan. You're a homeless wanderer. So immediately, for someone like Cain, Self-preservation kicks in because if you're a homeless wanderer, that's the basic thing you're thinking about. You've seen homeless people. All they're basically thinking about from one day to the next is survival. So self-preservation is born out of fear, and this provoked King to build his city. King definitely was an orphan. The origin of orphan is from the Middle English, from the late Latin orphanas. And what it simply means, taken from the high, old high German, is to be without inheritance. To be without inheritance. So when you're wandering, there's no established inheritance. In Genesis 4, verse 13, New Living Translation, Cain replied to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. Now this is what's working in King. Every seed, the Bible says, reproduces after its own kind. So what do you think is going to come from King? Now, he's saying it, and man in the earth creates the dynamic of what's going to be produced in the earth. God gave him that when he, when he sent him here to earth. A simple way of saying that is, whatever you say, that's what it is. Because we see God working in the earth, nothing happened until he said something. You could think forever. And that'll just be your thoughts. But the moment those words fly out your mouth, you have just given them creative potential in the earth because your words are seed. Are you with me here today? And so when Cain announced this, this is who I am. I'm a homeless wanderer. Then that seed generationally could only produce homeless 
That's why it's important that we say the right thing in agreement with God. That's why our children must hear us say the right thing. Therefore, we won't be shocked when we see what begins to come forth as fruit in their lives when they're teenagers. All right. And I know sometimes you can say all the right things and it still mess up. And the reason I know that is because God said all the right things and Adam still messed up. Talk with me here today. But so, so this, is, this is what Cain does now. So he gets a plan together. You see, with, with everything, there's first thoughts, words, and then you start planning around it. So Cain, the Bible says in Genesis 4, verse 17 to 24, New Living Translation, had sexual relations with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain founded a city, which he named Enoch after his son. Enoch had a son named Ired. Ired became the father of Mahujael. Mahujael became the father of Methusael. Methusael became the father of Lamech. Lamech, now we see something else introduced out of the line of Cain. Married two women. And I'm not sure what was working in his head. I'm, I'm just not sure. And I'm not saying that negatively. Come on. A man only needs one wife. I mean, if he, if he studies her well through his lifetime and dwell with her according to knowledge. You see, the Bible says dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Young brothers, what that means is study her. You don't have to live the rest of your life saying, man, I just can't figure my wife out. All that tells me is that you're not studying. Or I don't get it. Why does my wife you know, speak so much. I won't say talk so much. Speak so much. Well, if you study, you find out. All you got to do is study Genesis chapter 3. Lamech married. <laughs> Did you catch it? What I just said to you? Genesis chapter 3. What happened? She was talking, and he should have been. And he wasn't. Anyway, okay. Oh, hallelujah. So Lamech married two women. <laughs> the first was named Adah, and the second was Zillah. And Adah gave birth to Jabal, who was the first of those who raised livestock and lived in tents. So we got the nomadic lifestyle beginning here. His brother's name was Jubal, the first of all who played the harp and flute. So we see music introduced. Lamech's other wife, Zillah, gave birth to a son named Tubal-Cain. He became expert in forging tools of bronze and iron. So we see the smith industry established. Tubal-Cain had a sister named Naamah. One day, Lamech said to his wives, Edah and Zillah, Hear my voice. Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. 
And then you should see something. The very thing that was working in Canaan. You now see it repeated in another generation. I have killed a man who attacked me. And so we say, you know, he was protecting himself. A young man who wounded me, if someone who kills Cain is punished seven times. So clearly Cain told the story. Then the one who kills me will be punished 77 times. Now, what I want you to see is in this city, which has its foundation out of Cain, you already see what is working and what was working in Canaan in a fuller measure. It's because as you advance generationally, you increase people. And this thing is going to be expressed a whole lot more. So clearly this is not the line that God's going to work through, but it's the beginning of city building. So it's almost like saying, man, this idea of city doesn't start out all that bright. But it concludes in the revelation. And it's exactly what God had in mind. You see, in the tables of the descendants of Noah, records reveal extensive city building after the great flood. In fact, the first great empire builder, Nimrod, built several cities while extending, look, listen to his motivation, his power base because he was a hunter of men's souls. He was about domination, that is, dominion out of order, dominating other people. And so the Bible says in Genesis 10, verse 8 to 12, Cush was also the ancestor of Nimrod, who was the first heroic warrior on earth. Since he was the greatest hunter in the world, his name became proverbial. People would say, this man is like Nimrod, the greatest hunter in the world, who built his kingdom in the land of Babylonia with the cities of Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna. And from there he expanded his territory to Assyria, building the cities of Nineveh, Rehoboth-Ir, Kala, and Resen, the great city located between Nineveh and Kala. You see, once again, the point is he was extending a power base. And every expansionist nation does that. There was once a saying that said, the sun does not set on the British Empire. Now, how do you leave from those aisles and the sun never sets? on your empire other than you have an expansionist spirit. Nimrod was the beginner of this. And can I submit to you that his name, which comes from Marad, means he rebelled. He rebelled. So you see the rebellion in Cain. Now after the flood is over, you see rebellion still working in Nimrod. And all of these men are expanding their power base. And you're going to see where this is going to, hopefully by tomorrow. Because whenever you have a desire to control, 
so much wealth, you're equally expanding your power base. You know, some years ago, when the premier of China was making a visit to America, he stopped in Seattle first. Who do you think he stopped to see? The governor? The mayor? Who do you think he stopped to see? It was the man who had $80 billion, Bill Gates, before he even visited the president of the United States. One reason he didn't visit him because he was handsome is called money. And whenever you got $80 billion, your power base has significantly extended to the point that you draw the attention of leaders of nations. And that's how all this begins, is men extending their power base because they don't understand what dominion is all about. Dominion had four dynamics to it. Remember what it was? You're to multiply, you're to replenish, you're to subdue. I'm missing one. Help me out here. Well, easiest place to do is just go back to the scripture. Genesis 1, please. So they're, 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 these are the dynamics that's involved in dominion. Genesis 1, and if you look at verse uh, 20, 28, and God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful. That was the one. Be fruitful. Multiply. Replenish. Subdue. I would encourage you to study those four things. I don't have time to go through them now. But therein is where you have the scope of dominion. I will submit to you, there's never dominion over another person. Paul said it this way. He said, we're helpers of your joy. We don't have dominion over your faith. And that way, your faith will rest in Christ and not in man. You see, this is the danger area where this whole fathering thing is, is going to. Never dominion over anybody else's faith. And you start back here when you're extending your power base by controlling others. That's dominion out of order. Okay? So I'll close with, with this thought this morning. With this thought. The crescendo city building finds its most infamous climax attitudinally in Genesis 11. The narrative of the unfinished tower carries forward themes of language, solidarity, and planning from the table of the nations as they evolve out of Genesis 10. The builder's aspiration to, to autonomy, the aspiration for autonomy, recalls the rebellion of Eden in Genesis 3 and is a precursory call for Abram's redemptive faith in the midst of international disorder. What they said, they were of one language, they had one plan, and they were one. Three things you need if you're going to succeed. There's a fourth one they didn't have. It's called the will of God. What they were doing clearly was not the will of God. 
They were attempting to intrude into the God realm without permission. That was not the will of God. And so what God said, now what's amazing about this, 